So it's our second episode now. Um, you know, we're familiar with the process. We've spoken to a few people. If you haven't heard last week's episode, if you have, thank you for listening. Firstly, if you haven't, it's there. <laughs> Go check it out. It was a great interview. It's excellent with Samuel Gatachu on Ethiopia, predominantly the Tigray crisis, but also how that's spreading throughout Ethiopia. So go check it out. Um, so we've now realised in week two that we did start off with quite an ambitious um, goal to streamline these, these global crises. Um, and we've kind of realised that 30, 20 to 30 minute episodes were a bit ambitious considering that these issues are not, they're not easy and they're not simple and there's a reason for it. Yeah, we get to the end of the episode and um, we're like, there's nothing we can cut out from these episodes because mm. everything is relevant, everything fields different interests. And it's more like, you know, instead of trying to make these issues simple when they're obviously not, I think our point of doing this is, we have these really cool people here with a wealth of knowledge. They're willing to talk to us. They want us to share what they have to say and they want people to listen. And it's from a perspective of people who are there. So, you know, they're interesting, they're insightful, and we'd rather give you the full hour to listen and to just digest what they have to say and kind of leave feeling like you know a lot more about what's happening there and a big picture view as well. Um, we'd rather that than kind of cutting stuff down and just trying to shorten and simplify something that's not simple. Yeah, so this week is Afghanistan and it's an excellent firsthand experience of the fall of Kabul, the fall of Afghanistan from an Afghani perspective but also with a wealth of knowledge behind it. Mm. But we just didn't feel like we needed to provide context, not just for Afghanistan but you know, we've recorded other interviews as well and we feel as though everything that needs to be said is covered yeah, by the and, person and that's what matters. Yeah, and from like a, you know, tell us where it started to tell us where it is now. Like we we really cover everything um, and, yeah, we want to provide that to you guys and we want you to walk away having the big picture, you know, taking – I'm sure everyone will have different takeaways from it um, but – that's why we want to provide everything for you guys. So um, we hope that you walk away feeling like you learn something new because that's the, that's the purpose, that's the point. And hopefully, you know, it's different from what you, you have a different perception than what you walked in knowing about this place. Um, yeah, and it's about adding information to what you might see in the news and giving it context because a lot of the time, you know, we know the names of, of groups, we know the names of individuals, but we don't know what they stand for, who they are, or why they do the things they do, and that's what this is about, but also providing context. Um, spoiler alert, there is a, you know, for example, providing context on what, what it felt like to be at Kabul Airport. We could only see that chaos on the TV. Mm. So that's really interesting and great, And but in saying that if we get to the end of an interview and we feel like there's a big chunk of history missing that provides a lot of context, we will definitely inform you of that mm -hmm. at the start but otherwise you know we prepare our interviews ready to give the whole picture and hopefully that's what we get without us rambling on too much totally so without further ado <laughs> um this week our topic's afghanistan we have um 
two great guests, a brother and sister, who just fled Kabul three weeks ago. So they go through what it was like at the airport um, and then they go into all the history of it and how they got to where we are today. And then, as always, what we we always ask, you know, what can we do? And we've noticed something really interesting that was quite a pattern around what people in countries of conflict do want from the international community. So stay tuned and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Been There, Seen That. I'm Soph. And I'm Nay. This is the podcast that streamlines the messy world of global conflicts and humanitarian crises. Told by people who have been there, seen them, or lived them. To discuss what is a complex and fast-moving situation, with us today are Mujib and Salma Abid, a brother and sister who escaped just over three weeks ago from Kabul following the Taliban takeover. Mujib is a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland. He's an expert on Afghanistan's history, politics, and society. He has a Bachelor of Arts from Afghanistan and a Master's in Peace and Conflict Studies from the University of Sydney. He currently teaches as a sessional academic at the University of Melbourne. Selma is the founder and editor of Baharaf.com, an online space that publishes female Afghan writers. Selma has done her undergraduate studies in Kabul, graduating with a Bachelor of Political Science. She's currently in her second year of a Master's of International Relations at Turkey's Istanbul Kultur University. So we just wanted to start off by kind of getting to know where you guys are at at the moment. So do you both live in Brisbane or? Yeah, yeah. No, so we're in Brisbane now, the last four days now. Uh, we spent two weeks of quarantine at mm. Perth, um, which was uh, quite an experience, but we're over it now. And it was, though I have to say, like after having experienced everything in Afghanistan, it was yeah. a welcome break. Mm. Um, but now in mm. Brisbane and Brisbane feels like home. It's, it's interesting to come back to a place where like, you know, you know, the suburbs and the streets and the familiar spots. Mm-hmm. And you were both in Afghanistan just a few weeks ago? Yes, uh, like uh, three weeks ago now. Mm-hmm. It's been three weeks, over three weeks, a little bit. Uh, we were in Afghanistan and we were evacuated as part of the crowds and the, you know, uh, the evacuees kind of in their hundreds of thousands um, finding themselves at the airport. Um, we were part of uh, that uh, multitude of people who, mm. and we were the lucky ones who actually managed to get them on mm. one of those planes a lot of people mm. could not quite enter the airport or weren't at the right place at the right time yeah so, how did it work like did you you know have book tickets like was it everyone was did everyone kind of just flee to the airport and like how <laughs> what was yeah I can't imagine it was a very organized process <laughs> <laughs> no, no, unfortunately it wasn't. And I wish it was, you know, like how we sometimes complain about the, just uh, how tiring perhaps our usual airport experiences, how out of yeah. uh, depth it can, it can make you. But uh, seeing all of that, you wish to stand in some line, uh, you know, yeah. asking for a boarding pass. None of that unfortunately happened in Afghanistan. Yeah. Sophie, I, it was... Yeah. It was a, it was basically an, a, a military operation, uh, and they have a way 
a very particular way mm. with with how they run a shop. Um, you don't quite feel in control of anything, especially once you kind of made it to, to designated spots. So the way it worked was um, you would be told, well, you would, you would receive an email or, or if you're lucky, a phone call, which to me happened only in the final day. Um, and you would be asked to show up at a particular gate. Now, a lot of these gates, the main gate, the civilian gate, which is the only one that I was familiar with. Did mm-hmm. you know that there are other gates at the airport? No, no, no. No. So people like like we don't know. And these other like obscure gates usually mm-hmm. used by the military who were stationed there. Mm-hmm. They would ask you to show up in one of these or they would give you an option to show up in a number, any any one of these. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully you would meet um, some Western troops there, mm-hmm. any of the coalition countries. If you're very lucky, you would meet the country that you that you are from or that you have some sort of a relationship with. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so so we tried it on a number of occasions, um, and each time, honestly, I would go. Well, I would not allow Salma to, for example, come close because it was so unsafe. Mm-hmm. So the, she, she would be like usually in the car somewhere for like in a, in a distant location, mm-hmm. and I would go closer. And uh, the first two times I went, I couldn't even stay more than like ten minutes. I would just. It's a thing that you're not prepared for, is it? Like, mm. like yeah. I think only like some like experienced combatants, combatant soldiers, combat soldier would be would be okay with that. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I'd be scared and I'd just run back home, and um, that happened a number of times. And eventually, uh, I got some information and managed to 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 get there. Um, yeah, it provides a lot of context for what we're seeing in the news. Like we saw these scenes of the airport, and you just can't imagine like being being there and what that that was like. So that's really interesting. Um, so just for context, did you both grow up in Afghanistan, and then did you move to Australia, or um, what was? Yeah, where did you guys grow up? Uh, no, I I have been in Kabul. I was just studying, but uh, through online in Turkey. But Mujib have been here for um, eight or nine years, so I have been in Kabul, yeah, all these years. And I have, uh, however, I was in capital of Afghanistan in Kabul, and there was a bit, a bit normal. Um, I am. There wasn't um, like direct war. But um, of course, we have been experiencing um, the war in our country, and yeah, yeah. I was in Kabul. But Salma <laughs> was like doing her bachelor's and, and yeah. did it there in political science, and then yeah. afterwards doing a postgrad yeah. uh, degree uh, and, in Turkey. Yeah, and and especially I, I remember the years uh, when I was uh, doing my bachelor. It was the most insecure years. Uh, there was always every day just um, attacks in Kabul um, and uh, that ice attacks, Taliban attacks. And um, yeah, it was some tough years, but uh, then since 2018 and 19, it, it get a bit uh, fine, mm. a bit, just because there was peace talks and uh, I guess that's why. Yeah. What did it feel like, you know, when Donald Trump made the announcement last year that the Americans and the Allies were going to withdraw? What did it feel like on the ground in Kabul for people? Were people what, what did people feel? Well, uh, Sufi, uh, Sufi, right? Um, Name, Okay, Liam, 
for me, um, personally, for me, I wasn't happy with the previous regimes, to be honest. You know, as a woman, as a girl, uh, I wasn't okay with uh, previous um, governments that was so corrupted. There was a puppet government and uh, that wasn't an independent government. Um, the the new, new uh, political system after 2001 uh, brought us, um, we women, brought us some new uh, sort of um, like violences. Mm. However, they were climbing as um, the, the woman issue mm. and uh, empowerment issue of women or in their uh, top of agenda. But uh, it was, um, unfortunately, it was just a lie. They were just using women as their as uh, symbols to to legitimize their uh, system, their corrupted system, their um, occupation, mm. their puppet government, and uh, I've never been uh, happy with uh, with that. So I was kind of happy um, if the youth is is going to leave our country, but um, I, honestly, I've never wanted the absolute rule of Taliban in our country because. Uh, um, I know, I know that they are so extremist. Um, my mother uh, has, and, and other women um, has um, told me so many things uh, about their pre previous uh, term. And uh, that's why I have never expected such a situation in my country. Uh, maybe I, I wanted a coalition government without use, um, like um, uh, interruption mm. in, in, uh, in our country. But um, Everything changed, everything turned, something no one has expected. Mm. Mm. So what was the period of time like, um, you know, the last month, um, Mujib, when you were in Afghanistan and what you kind of saw? Uh, was it different from, you know, when you were back there yeah. years yeah. ago? Or? I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you something that happened. Oh, this time around, I went in late July, and it was it was explicitly um, to get my family out of there because you know, like I I engage with Afghanistan closely. I, I suppose it's part of the job. Um, so I I kind of anticipated that something quite dramatic would happen, that the status quo would no longer be able to um, just be reproduced. You know. Um, but just going back this time around, I was meeting a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine from my undergrad years, and uh, we had coffee and we were just hanging out and a bunch of her other friends came and we were just having a good time. And then uh, it was time to go home. I went to get my car and I was going to drop my friend off at her place first and then I was going to go home. But as soon as we, uh, as soon as I started the car and, you know, you can hit the road, there was some like noise that were coming from the back of the car, very like strange noise, something like cranking against the, it felt like against the body of the car. And it just went on and on and it would just go, it would die down and then it come back again. So I look at my friend like, do you know what's going on? Because <laughs> I have no idea what's, and I don't know much about cars. And then she said, oh, it could be, she had this alarming look on her face and she said, it could be a chaspaki. Now, a chaspaki mm -hmm. is a local term for a type, a particular type of IEDs that are very easy to stick to vehicles, and then it will, it will, it will. It's explosive, so it will explode on God. on the tour. Yeah. So, <laughs> so as, as soon as I hear that, I park the car uh, and like just like on not park, like stop the car, 
I asked my friend to really like leave the car and, and uh, maintain some distance uh, or what I think is a reasonable distance from a car that could potentially explode at any moment. And then I also do the same and I try to see what's going on, right? Um, and I, I, I don't know what the Chaspeki looks like. I don't know uh, what it would sound like. I don't know what it does to a car. Mm. So I remember just calling people around and nobody could give me any Obviously, no one, no one could, no one, any definite answers. So, anyway, so finally, um, I decide that it's perhaps not it, and I go home. And I remember I was just sweating; it was just really bad. And I go home and I give my brother back his car. And then the next day, it turns out someone had tried to. So this is not part of the story, but I suppose someone had tried to steal some like little <laughs> bits and pieces from the tires of the car, and but they had failed. So it was making all these strange noises. But I'm saying that because I think this was the first time it had gotten so extreme, just mm-hmm. being in Kabul, so out of control and so unpredictable that anybody, even like someone like me or, or my friend, uh, we could be potential targets. Uh, so mm-hmm. this time around, it was just it was just different. It was an area of change, uh, not in a good way. Um, people were, you know, very much, um, mm. I don't know, like uh, there was, there's a lot of mistrust I felt I always felt like being in Kabul it gives me a sense of calm because even a stranger you talk to mm. um, it's it's because the society as a whole still draws from a different sort of set of cultural priorities I suppose or something that is quite original to the to the historical context and trajectories there uh, just this time around I wouldn't I wouldn't, I wouldn't experience that as much uh, there was a lot of seemingly Similarly, there was a lot of mistrust and, you know, I don't know, like an unspoken kind of um, language of, you know, stay, stay, you know, like know your your own sort of role and and stick to that and don't try to be too friendly or just the usual doesn't quite fly uh, Mm. as as it would normally. Uh, But, and of course, it was all, you know, before you know it, districts are falling by their tens and then provinces start uh, falling into the hands of the Taliban uh, casualties mount up um, so it's all there's a reason for it people like tens of thousands of displaced people enter into Kabul um, stationed at sort of public parks and you would just see all of that and experience all of that and I suppose that would have an effect on the psychological sort of um, mm you know, I don't know, state of mind, collective psychological frame of mind of, of, of the Kabulese. Mm. So going into the Taliban now, um, can you help us sort of understand who they are and, and what they believe and what their vision is for Afghanistan and their religious roots? Yeah. So they have um, a madrasa-based education. Can you understand what, can you explain, sorry, what that means? Yeah, no, no. Look, I, and this is a, it's a huge conversation, right? So this is... Yeah. It's, it's a, so in the Muslim world in general, as much as uh, we are expected or we are led to believe that the Muslim world is some sort of a monolith, you know, obviously a simple fact is it, it's not, it cannot be. Um, and so just starting from that point of, I suppose assume differentiation and diversity of thought, of action, of ideological or, you know, even theological kind of uh, positions. So Taliban are quite unique, both in terms of the 
you know, history of conflict in Afghanistan, but also in terms of its more abstract, mm. you know, theological or ideological leanings. And that, um, well, first, it's different from what, what are usually, what, what, what are usually called Salafist jihadists. So think of an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS. Um, they, are, they come from a very different sort of textual and theological uh, and historical lineage, let's say. Uh, because unlike Salafists who are coming from the Hanbali jurisprudence, and it has its own kind of trajectory that goes back to what some would say 18th century, but most certainly sort of second half of the 19th century, uh, you know, where as a result of this encounter with Western imperialism, there was sort of a particularly Arab slash Hanbali a revivalist movement and it kind of takes different turns and there are shifts and fluctuations but you know at some point we end up with al-qaeda dating back to at least 1988 uh, and the unique context of afghanistan and then al-qaeda in a way it sort of helps uh, with the with the coming together of and the absolute sort of uh, um declaration of existence in a very dramatic fashion in 2014 of uh, Islamic State of Syria, uh, of uh, ISIS, right? Syria and Iraq. So, so there is sort of that, but I think Taliban are not coming from that trajectory at all. They are instead coming from what is quite unique to the subcontinent and its own experiences of encounters with Western, in this case, specifically uh, British colonialism in the region. Um, they are, you know, the madrasa that you're referring to, or the seminaries, as, as the language that we use in the West, uh, these religious schools, they are part of a network uh, of what is known for over 150 years now in the subcontinent as the Deoband um, madrasa network, right? Um, the Deoband school came into existence directly as a backlash to the failure of the Indian mutiny in, in mid-19th century. So as a result of it, Islamist, Muslim traditionalists uh, relied on non-violent, uh, you know, uh, disobed civil disobedience and other creative mechanisms of resistance towards imperialism. Um, it has de taken different forms and shapes, but for, for you know, in, in, in the greater scheme of things, they have kind of stayed true to that uh, Sufiist or spiritualist kind of approach to organization of society and power. Taliban emerges in 1994 um, from the sort of student body of these very seminaries, which incidentally, so I don't want to simplify it, they had gone through some fundamental shifts as a result of the, you guys remember the Afghan jihad in the 80s, you might have, yeah, so yeah. the occupation of Afghanistan in the 80s, which in many yeah. ways changed the relationships between between the Western world and certainly the Afghanistan, but also the Muslim world. So the Taliban emerges from these traditionalist uh, Deobandi madrasa networks, primarily in Pakistan, in 1994 as a backlash to the imposition of a sort of totalitarian or totalizing ideology by Islamists, Afghan Islamists at the time. The problem was these Islamists could not get along and they were not only terrorizing themselves, but also and cutting on each other's ranks at a very high, very unsustainable pace. But they're also terrorizing the population at large. 
from sort of 1992 when the communist regime were was overthrown to 1996 when Taliban finally managed to take over Kabul. Now, where they come from, because of that traditionalism of the Diubandi school, it allows for a group like Taliban to draw on its own Pashtun, the ethnic group, um, cosmologies and texts and sort of symbols. So, so Taliban in many ways uh, finds themselves between sort of this uh, subcontinental, you know, imaginaries that perhaps is symbolized by its Diubandi attachments, but also it's very local, very communal, uh, very particular mm -hmm. uh, tribal codes and mores, uh, things like Pashtun Wali, which is a which is a sort of unwritten, uh, though intergenerationally transmitted um, set of rules, norms, and and and, and behaviors. Uh, though, I, and I'll I'll finish on this. It's, so as as we established that something else also happens from sort of late two thousand one. In October, when the Americans invade Afghanistan, they remove Taliban forcefully. And their approach and their attitude towards Taliban in the so-called so post-conflict society is one of repression, is one of disavowal, very violent disavowal. Um, it is one of uh, rejection in a very total and a very authoritarian way, I suppose. Uh, I think all of that, and then the 20 years of struggle in an asymmetric conflict, a, it results in a hardening influence where Taliban, while emanating um, from sort of a traditionalist perspective, uh, they also over 20 years have had to or have gone through these transformations to become what it is today, which I, I sort of take the liberty of defining as, as an as a, uh, Islamo-traditionalist kind of native organization or nativist organization. It's not easily and fortunately categorizable, as a lot of mm. these movements are, um, as just one or the other, an explicit organization that subscribes to, uh, say, a Salafist jihadist doctrine or a Said Qutb-based kind of school of thought, or one that is like exclusively looking to the Afghan village and its um, egalitarian Sufist approaches to power. It's, not, it's in between somewhere. Uh, and on top of all of that, not to extend the conversation too long, because like I said, this is, there's so much could be said about this. But like on top of all of that, uh, the Salafists themselves, and, and there's a lot of scholarship on this, they, as much as they reject and dismiss all sort of all things Western mod modern modernity, they themselves inadvertently uh, sort of mimic Western modernity. They assume, for example, like, like an Islamic state assumes that the state is the exclusive organizer of power. That's an idea that came to us as a result of colonialism and European modernity. Uh, this, this, even this approach, this hegemonic approach to total control uh, and domination is, is, I would venture to say, is not something that is unique to a lot of them, not all, I don't want to speak in absolutes, but not, it's not unique to a lot of the indigenous kind of cultural uh, perspectives uh, of the places that they seemingly um, that they seemingly seemingly originate from, mm. but like just just Taliban, I think it's a it's a it's a complex entity, um, and it draws from many different sources and experiences or or histories, perhaps. And I guess kind of something that we did want to revert back to, which we haven't touched on, was um, the war on terror and. Al-Qaeda and the 9-11 attacks and 
the US invasion. Um, so firstly, what we wanted to ask was, what was Al-Qaeda's relationship with the Taliban at the time of 9-11? And if you could touch on kind of the objective of the US invasion in Afghanistan. Right, right. Hmm. So, so I, I think in terms of, so, so some of those sort of ideological roots um, that I like to, I think it's important to talk about, of course, uh, for no other reason, reason than to better understand um, these movements and the potential, the awesome potential that they have for carnage and violence. Uh, so that's significant as it is, but I think we should also, it's important to point out that a lot of these movements, a lot of these organizations are a product of very specific, rather unique set of circumstances. And the band or the alliance that was there um, from sort of 96 onwards between Al-Qaeda and Taliban, uh, it was in many ways a product of the very unique set of circumstances that the Taliban and for that matter Al-Qaeda at the time under Osama bin Laden uh, was finding itself under. Taliban were isolated. It was a pariah state by any you know, stretch of the imagination. Um, it uh, did not have, it, I mean, internationally it wasn't recognized, only a handful of states recognized it. And even at that, they couldn't quite uh, support the type of aid that a functioning state, um, well, a, a, a functioning state shouldn't rely on too much aid anyway, but like a state, especially the type that Afghanistan in 1996, 1997 was, uh, would, would, would need to function. They just didn't have access to it because of um, their lack of recognition globally. Um, so it, then it relies on a sort of a set of non-state actors, and Al-Qaeda is one of them. Uh, Al-Qaeda provided the type of promise, in other cases, material support, uh, owing to the uh, particular financial sort of arrangement of that that uh, Osama bin Laden's family um, came from, that background that he came from. Uh, so yeah, so so th that was that what that relationship. I think uh, that's how it was, and it only would uh, it would mature, I suppose, or it would expand over time. There are accounts of, for example, people in the inner circle of Osama bin Laden. There are these texts um, that describe a very close relationship, for example, between Mullah Omar, who was the leader of the Taliban, and Osama himself. There were. Um, marriages between their families, um, you know, a, a, a particular relationship that bore sort of a unique set of policies that the Taliban over time adopted, some of them quite unimaginable, I think, even for Afghanistan at the time, like the destruction of the Buddhas of Bamiyan, which I think uh, the Taliban were influenced in making that decision by their Arab guests, right? That's the language that they used. Um, yeah, so, and, and the, in many ways, an outcome of that was um, the realization of at least some of the material goals that were set by the uh, global jihadist uh, group um, in the form of uh, certain bombings and terrorist attacks, uh, culminating, of course, with the biggest one of them, the collapse of the Twin Towers and the attacks and Pentagon in September, uh, 11th of September, 2001. Um, but I think because of the, uh, 
the sort of the complexity with which within which ideologically or culturally uh, within which Taliban operates, I think they struggle to come to terms with why their guests would undertake such a heinous act on the one hand. And on the other hand, they were, I think, caught between um, the realities of international community or, you know, the, the community of modern states and the norms that dictates relations between them and sort of their own, you know, parochial, let's say, traditionalisms. You know, if you remember one of the things that the Taliban leadership at the time were absolutely adamant about, despite the fact that they spoke about negotiations and they were open to talks, uh, even uh, an option of handing over the, uh, the Al-Qaeda leadership to a Muslim state and then to be tried by said Muslim state. And, I mean, they were offering that as a counter offer to what the Americans were demanding uh, at the time, which was a surrender of Al-Qaeda uh, top leadership. Um, I think they were caught in between these sort of different cosmologies and they couldn't quite make a decision in time uh, to, 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 to protect themselves. You know, the, that influence from traditional Afghanistan, I think, was so intense that, that, you know, principles took over, misplaced principles or perhaps uh, misappropriate as they were. But those principles of hospitality or what, and I remember that the code of tribal code of conduct, like Pashtunwali, like Mel Mastia is a very important component of that code. Mel Mastia means hospitality or the, uh, the, the, the prerogative to host someone who seeks refuge um, in your territory or realm or home for that matter, right? Which is community, uh, communities, it's just a house or your land or your community mosque. Uh, so you, you extend that to a world that's defined by uh, communities of nation states and not villages any longer. It doesn't quite translate as, as smoothly as you would imagine. And I think that's where, the, that's where the, perhaps the challenge lies. And uh, yeah, so in the end, they just wouldn't hand over the man and his team and his family. And they, they had to experience the consequences of it, which were which was um, military takeover, a removal from power. And then on top of that, they were being hunted down, uh, imprisoned and subjected to, you know, war on terror and its imperatives, which was defined by sustained, uh, you know, violent war. And, uh, and, and I feel like in some ways it could have been avoided, but also then there's this complexity that underlies a lot of it. The US's intention was to remove Osama bin Laden. Why did they stay around after, after 2011? Well, so something else happened, Sophie. And, and then this is, so this is a, it's a very broad conversation because what happened in Afghanistan, as much as it was a product of the circumstances, it's also, it happens in the backdrop of a longer history of, uh, a hegemonic European uh, modernist imaginary that believes in a globalist agenda encountering a society that draws from a different uh, set of cultural priorities. Mm. And I think an articulation or an expression of this clash between the modern and the traditional um, is the way that the war on terror's own agenda metamorphosizes over a short period of time and we see it obviously practically we see it in the ever-growing number of uh, you know the occupation force and the joining of more and more nation states 
um, and, and that effort, although, you know, how they would self-define or how they would operate deferred quite a bit, quite, quite uh, a bit across different nations and contributing nations, as they were called. Um, but look, one of the ways that that sort of modernist um, uh, hegemonic call for assimilation or demand for assimilation, one of the ways that it finds articulation or expression is through, um, on top of the sort of security imperative, on the side of it, there is that humanist uh, I, set of ideals that finds expression in the language of state building, right? So we can actually uh, pinpoint this to a set of texts that were published in 2004 and five by a bunch of uh, people with very questionable politics of their own, who, for example, quite explicitly believe in the superiority of Western civilization and its sort of uh, right to expand and take over and transform others uh, that might stand alone or, 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 or stand out from, from that crowd, that assimilationist sort of politics. Uh, Afghanistan clearly, um, given its history, but certainly given its uh, history of Taliban in the 90s, uh, stood outside that sort of uh, monolithic West or the monolithic France that the West had imagined for itself, whether it was, you know, the West, Western world itself or what it had considered as allies, right? Um, so the state, going back to the state building, now the state building is, is rhetoric or discourse is built on a number of, uh, you know, principles. Uh, I'll just give you a brief account of it, right? So this is a lot of, a bunch of texts that you can sort of, uh, you, you, you know, we, we can perhaps speak to some of its principles. So first is that failed states, because we assume states as the only exclusive organizer of power, now, in international community, a failed state is not only bad for the citizens of that society, it's also a threat for the rest of the world. And Afghanistan would be given as an example of, um, you know, a textbook example of a failed state and how that failure uh, resulted in loss of lives and essentially uh, expansion of uh, terror into the peaceful um, sort of abode of, of, of the civilized world, right? These, and these are the, it, it might sound crass and whatnot, but this is the language that we've been hearing. Certainly in early 2000s, it was very common, this uh, sort of uh, drawing from, from that racially charged and civilizationally charged kind of language that the West itself has inherited from its own colonial past. Now, if these states are failing and it's bad for its own population and it's a threat for us, then of course we have to address that. And the way to address that, the, the problem of the failed state as a disease, is to build new states, right? And to build new states, you need to have longer-term commitments to that society, whether it's in the form of the security intervention or whether it's a more humanitarian slash development slash um, aid kind of you know, uh, 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 contingency. And the reason that the Western world, you know, prolonged the occupation for as long as they did, despite perhaps signs of fatigue here and there, and certainly uh, 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 a turning uh, of perhaps popular opinion against the war in Afghanistan, the so-called good war against the bad war, which uh, Iraq were consistently was consistently defined as, um, the, the reason that they would stick to that agenda 
is because that it wasn't just about vengeance anymore. It was about standing by a set of ideals that the West had inherited from hundreds of years of its own experimentation with ideas, um, enlightenment principles, with modernity, um, with civilization, uh, and you know, with with its own sense of superiority. Um, and in that sense, I think it's important, and I'll finish on this, to be able to draw a line between between classic colonialism, especially in the subcontinent, and how classic colonialism over time metamorphosizes itself into post-colonial nationalism, and then how that nationalist, post-colonial nationalist discourse and practice, praxis uh, in the sort of uh, 60s or post-World War II period develops into a, a developmentalism kind of set of ideals and practices. And then by 2004 and five, we see that even that developmentalism cannot quite sustain itself. So now it has to be reimagined as a set of sort of um, uh, uh, resolutions to a newer challenge, a newer problem that we have diagnosed, these undesirable states and societies, which, which is the disease of state building. Um, so it's important, I think, to me anyway, it's important to be able to draw those historical trajectories so that we don't try to explain Afghanistan in its own contemporary kind of, or in its own present, just like you can't explain the West and its power and its desire to devour and, and hegemonically assimilate its others um, and, and by just looking at the now, that, that would be misleading. And another thing that's quite complex, I think people assume that the US relationship with the Taliban has always been to remove them, but, you know, you mentioned the Soviet war that happened and that was quite a different relationship that they had. Can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of that US relationship with the Taliban um, and, and how maybe that they assisted in the Taliban's initial sort of rise? Yeah, well, I mean, it is there's, there's certainly... Um, caused the sort of, I don't want to say they, they it, it was a very sort of intentional uh, strat strategy of, of the U.S. to have uh, a regime like the Taliban emirate in power, or at least to serve as custodians of the state in the 90s and late 90s. But in terms of how the Taliban are manifest uh, or, or how is it articulated, uh, as a political front or as a political regime right now, I think a lot of that goes back to how they were treated by the coalition led by the U.S. over the last 20 years. Um, I think there was a lot of chances, and others have pointed this out, um, there was a lot of chance, chances of reconciliation, intra-Afghan kind of peace talks, all the way dating back 2002, 2003, 2000. For you know, when, when sort of the foundational documents of the new liberal state in Afghanistan were being codified and negotiated. But at every turn, the Americans shunned the Taliban and their overtures for reconciliation and peace. And not, that's not to say the Taliban were some monolithic front, but there were certainly uh, very significant voices and fronts within it, identifiable fronts, that wanted peace and reconciliation with the new establishment. And they were instead uh, faced with, um, you know, a, 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 a demand for um, assimilation into the new order, 
total assimilation into the new order, no, no room for negotiation, or worse, incarceration, subjugation, and uh, repression in the form of, you name it, Bagram to Guantanamo to all the black sites that we know about in Central Asia or Egypt, right? Just the name of it, or Jordan. Um, so in that sense, like that extremism or that fundamentalism, which we don't speak about at all when it comes to, to the Western world and its dealings with Afghanistan, that fundamentalism, it, it, it begets more fundamentalism. It, it uh, produces more fundamentalism. It hardens the Taliban. Unfortunately for Afghans, 37, 38 million of them right now, uh, they have to bear um, the, the sort of the, the costs or the consequences of that uh, assimilationist demand by the West. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the reason that I would say, I don't know what Salma thinks of this or you guys for that matter, but the reason that the Taliban are right now, despite this complete military victory, um, the reason that they are announcing an in, like sort of um, uh, a general amnesty and they're by and large kind of sticking to it, although Panjshir would be a very alarming development. That is, by the way, the, the, the final province that they took over. Uh, but they can, that, that general amnesty, I think it comes, I would credit it to the traditionalism of Taliban. There's a particular way that Afghans fight wars, or there's a particular approach even to, you know, war making and peacemaking. And I think those sensibilities kind of have infused themselves in how Taliban behave right now. Uh, of course, a lot of us feared, uh, the West certainly did, um, that there would be much more of uh, a desire for vengeance, exacting revenge. The, the, the Taliban have paid a heavy price for their two decades of struggle. Salma and I know this from experience, what has happened in our own village, from which we were forced into exile like 12 years ago. But like the loss, the carnage, the suffering, the broken families, the young kids who I grew up, you know, they were younger than me, these boys. And then you were not, you were away, you were split. You live in different sort of worlds, although you're part of the same country. And then one after the other, you, you hear these names. These, I have these beautiful memories of these kids who are either, you know, we play sports or we just, you know, be sharing the same community mosque or the same playgrounds and they're dead or or they were killed or they uh, one boy was killed who I actually remember when he was just a kid just a child probably like 10 12 he was killed on the very eve of the Taliban takeover of Kabul you know um, mm -hmm. but yeah it, it's it's that to 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 see all of that to experience all of that mm -hmm. and still to be able to at least in rhetoric again I, I should I should preface this right and in, in practice unfortunately there's been a lot of alarming developments over the last couple of weeks uh, by the Taliban Emirate, the new establishment. But in rhetoric, they seem a, a lot more open than we were ever willing to give them credit for. Uh, we were too, too glad to dismiss them as terrorists or somehow conflate them with Al-Qaeda or ISIS, even as much as that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, mm or Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, or even Tahrik Taliban in Pakistan, all these different groups. Um, the fact is they were not. I think they, they had a point. And, and some of us made these noises, you know? Uh, or or we, we like to wish that there was some sort of 
splits between them that uh, Haqqani network was somehow different from the Taliban. Well, it turns out they're not. They're part of the same non-monolithic, incredibly diverse um, political group that actually is internally fragmented, but it doesn't always, that doesn't mean that they will kill one another for it. At least so far, that's not what it means. Mm, so you think that the, do you think that the Taliban now, you know, they've kind of said that they're different to what we've seen before, they're going to implement things differently, but they have said that within the realm of Sharia law, yeah. Um, do you think that we can trust that things are different? And can you tell us just briefly about the recent appointments of the transitional government ministers and who they are? Yeah, yeah. No, look, it's, uh, and I want to hear from Salma as well on this uh, because, well, it's, 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 I imagine it's different to speak to it as a man than it would be as a, as a, as a woman. Uh, there's the rhetoric, there is the promise of openness, inclusivity. There is the promise of standing in for something that is not quite easily legible to a Western population or audience or perhaps even a class of experts, um, which I think Taliban kind of attempt to, to, to portray themselves as such. Um, but then there is a reality, and as I alluded to earlier, I think there has been some very alarming developments since the August 15th. Uh, takeover of the Kabul of the capital by the Taliban, namely the military takeover um, of Panjshir, the last stronghold um, against a sort of total uh, takeover of Taliban in, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, that's not to say that the uh, you know National Resistance Front, the the name that uh, the self-assigned name. Um, of the resistance by uh, non-Pashtun, primarily non-Pashtun, uh, you know, political dissidents who were also then stalwarts of the former establishment that Taliban just removed. So there's a whole politics and history there that perhaps we don't have the time to get into too much right now. So I don't want to give them a blanket sort of seal of approval, but uh, putting that aside, the way that the Taliban approached it, there was some genuine questions that were coming from the from the public, for example, one of the things that they would say on social media and whatnot, and even some of the protesters in Kabul and other big cities, you were open to talking to Americans for most definitely for two years, but some could say someone like me, I would say going back all the way to 2010, 2011, um, the, the Americans and Taliban were in talking terms, even though there was a war that was being raged on both sides at home. But you couldn't even do that for two months when it came to your own Afghans. You had to impose your hegemonic, total kind of imaginary, um, and you couldn't imagine another alternative where power, if not power per se, uh, a sort of cultural uh, input could be allowed from these channels, whatever the politics of those channels of input are. And they couldn't do that. I think it took them... What, how long it took them like on the 1st of September, the next day after the Americans and the foreign troops withdrew the airport, mm -hmm. the uh, skirmishes were reported between the resistance um, and the Taliban in that valley. And I think if I'm not mistaken, by the 6th, the, uh, the uh, provincial capital was uh, over overrun by the Taliban. Um, and 
And then there has been all types of reports of, um, you know, a very heavy-handed approach by the Taliban in terms of policing, uh, both, both policing the population, but also, I think, uh, retaliation against fighters or combatants uh, who are either unwilling to concede, even as the provincial capital fell, or in other instances were just um, captured by the Taliban. Um, so that's just one of it. Then, then we have to come and you refer to it, the new government. So right now they've announced a caretaker government. This, supposedly this is not the final, um, the final kind of iteration of, of their government or of their emirate. Um, but as to who is in that cabinet of 32 ministers, 30 of them are Pashtun. That is not inclusive at all. That is, a, that is, that is the definition uh, of an uh, you know, ethnically defined um, sort of uh, totalitarian approach to power. Uh, and then on top of that, if I'm not mistaken, I think half of that cabinet or, or were people who are actually, who had portfolios of their own back in the 90s and the second half of the 90s as part of the original Taliban Emirate, including the chairperson of the Council of Ministers, uh, Hassan Akhund. Um, and then people like Khairullah Khairkhwa and a bunch of other names who are quite familiar to someone like my dad and he would have stories and, you know, anecdotes about who these people are. Uh, you know, he would, he would tell me about it. He would tell us about it. We were mm -hmm. talking about it the other night. Uh, these are not, there's not, there's not a single woman in that cabinet. Mm -hmm. um, there are very little, like, and, and again, they say that they will improve on it, but the other thing is, they said the same thing. So I came across something um, recently. Uh, there was a little clip of some guy, Sher Muhammad Abbas Astanakzai, who was one of the principal negotiators of the Taliban at Doha over the last couple of years. Now Astanakzai says now, as, as does a lot of the other Taliban, whatever, whatever deficiencies there are in our government that you single out, we will, we will fix them, we will address them. We just need more time. That's, that's their sort of you know, that's their, their, their position, the conventional position to a lot of critique. There's this clip, and I, I want you to have a look at it, see if you can find it. But the same Sher Muhammad Al-Sanagzai said the exact same lines. It's eerie to see the similarities. All the way back in September of 1996, when it came to critiques of their treatment of women. This is all temporary. Women are locked away in their homes. They shouldn't leave their houses, don't go to work. Uh, but it's all temporary. We'll just sort it out. We just need the right time, the right amount of time and resources to turn uh, the workplace into an, uh, you know, Sharia-based, Islamically sound kind of workspace, mm -hmm. to turn the college campus into a gender-segregated, but Sharia-wise Sharia uh, sound and sort of ethical kind of um, setting. Uh, they are kind of drawing from the same bag of tricks and it is uh, it is worrying it, it's also kind of getting old um and i don't think we should be fooled too much so we should hold on to you know we should we should stick to 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 to, to critique a sustained critique of them it's just that, that critique shouldn't then draw us any closer to the conventional um Western approach to dealing with Afghanistan or Taliban because that has also been a colossal failure. Mm -hmm. I'll end with this. 
I feel like I'm a genuine believer in a sense of double critique, you know, and a double critique that will what, that can allow us to imagine peaceful alternative futures. In this sense, that means going back, uh, you know, going out there and critiquing Taliban and staying over here and critiquing the errors and hubris and the colonialist undertones of uh, Western intervention in Afghanistan over the last two decades. To critique one doesn't automatically mean to champion the other. Unfortunately, I've seen, uh, we see, I see that a lot, a lot mm -hmm. often. We should deal with that. I want to hear from Salman, uh, if you guys are all can see yeah, what no, Salman, we did want to ask yeah. you um, what it means for women's rights. Um, well, um, for me, for me as a woman, the arrival of Taliban on power is a two-sided issue, okay? The very first uh, place, from the very first uh, place, the arrival of Taliban on power is, uh, means the end of a bloody war for all Afghans. A, a war that is first victims were uh, women, you know. Um, the fact that uh, in all uh, war years, women who had uh, lost their husbands, their sons, their um, brothers, and, and that it was women who had to feed the um, survive, uh, surviving um, family in a patriarchal Afghan family that was woman. You know, it's not easy. It's, it's just a, a one side of case. But, uh, you know, we have mothers who innocently um, were witnessed of, of the um, enmity between two of her, uh, her sons, just because one of them were in Taliban and the other one was in National Army, you know. Mm -hmm. And likewise, we have a woman who had lost her husband and four of his sons all at once. And I guess the, uh, this is uh, behind of imagination, you know, it's not easy at, at all. And uh, um, I myself, I'm from a generation that I burned in, uh, in war. I, I spent my childhood uh, in war. I educated and, and finally I, I grew up in war. But but this miserable war never end. And, and I can say I have always felt a, a, a strange relationship between me and this war. And that's not um, fine at all. You know, I, I can I can't even explain how it feels to to have a relationship in all uh, through all your life with yeah. with a bloody war. And and uh, finally, I can say women were tired and and broken of this war. Um, I know the women who who were deeply um, willing to uh, willing to to like. Um, uh, uh, to to give some of their uh, freedoms and just um, freedoms in, in exchange for the Taliban and US backed government um, of Kabul, just in, in in the case that they could uh, bring as a, a coalition government. You see um, how how or how much um, sacrifice um, they could be to um, you know who have um, been holding their aspiration, their wish and trade-off of peace with two extremists and, and power-seeking groups. Now, um, I can say that uh, a bloody war is over. As an uh, Afghan, as an, as an um, Afghan woman, I can say that nothing can uh, justify all the violences we faced during all these years, you know. And uh, I, I'm, I'm from here, from your program, I'm calling to the all world leaders that they owe an apology to the uh, women of Afghanistan, you know. Mm. Um, you know, no, no one can feel the, the feelings of a, of a mother 
who lost uh, her son or or uh, a wife who has lost his uh, husband so um so and this is uh, war is over but uh, this is the question this is the question at what cost did it, it end it and, and I, exactly this is where i guess the second uh, side of taliban co coming on power um you know uh, comes the, the domination of Taliban at the same time means the collapse of a democracy, a democracy that women um, of Afghanistan really hoped and worked for. And um, yeah, what happened uh, in Afghanistan is exactly what the women were afraid of. And that's the absolute um, domination or absolute rule of Taliban. And um, you know, today women are at risk of uh, at risk of raising from the society, and um, I guess the, um, unfortunately the the previous government of Afghanistan were were not uh, so independent to to make some fundamental changes in the life of uh, women, and um, they had been uh, using women in different ways to legitimize their being, to mm. legitimize their uh, occupation, to legitimize their, their puppet government. And uh, it's true that women had a large uh, share in, in the government and political society, uh, like in, in um, parliament, in government position, in um, public sectors. But uh, this political contribution was so symbolic that um, that that uh, I guess that they could not use their position to build a defense uh, base and in, in the so uh, social and economic sphere of women. Mm. And uh, or I, I I can say that um, this political um, uh, you know contribution weren't uh, enough to to build or or to address their social and economic um, challenges from abroad. Um, you know, a feminist, feministic uh, perspective, and uh, today a huge um, part of women who I'm in uh, contact with them, or uh, just they do not have um, hope for their future, cause Taliban are just ignoring them um, from their basic rights of education and work, and um, I guess uh, their um, identities are getting erased once again from the society, okay. and. Um, Obviously, this is a humanitarian crisis, and uh, I want the world to not uh, leave um, Afghan women again on the hands of barbaric uh, Taliban group. Uh, there was a really popular image going around um, on social media, and it was of these three girls, and they were um, kind of in, you know, they weren't wearing their, their hijabs, they were in short skirts, and they were taking their books, I think, to university. And I think the yeah. way that it was kind of modelled was, this is how Afghanistan used to be. And yeah. now it's being taken over by the Taliban. Yeah. And there were, was a lot of kind of back and forth in the comments. And, um, yeah, I, I, that kind of did remind me what you were just saying of, of that image and yeah, how yeah. that positionality kind of does happen. Totally, totally. And, and look, and that image itself, or that it's a series of images. They come from the 60s and 70s. Mm. Um, there's, there seems to be an album that goes around. Salmon knows this quite well. We've talked about this. Um, those images, we just because, and, and again, it's, it's what you guys were talking about. I think before uh, earlier as well. It's uh, our short attention spans, and how much could we really care about a place that we constantly seem to be hearing about on the news, and it's always bad news. So we don't really care to look too much into the politics of the visuals that we're being fed. We just like to see 
um, a photo that supposedly captures something that sounds familiar, that comes across as um, one of us or people trying to be us, people trying to replicate what we have already considered to be superior mm -hmm. and the better way. Uh, in that case, it's a dress code, but also it's the book and it's the university campus. That's you know, University, by the way, that mm -hmm. photo is taken there. And it's in front of him, if I'm not mistaken, the medical school there. Um, and of course, it's the Western science and Western education uh, that that photo somehow or those series of photos capture. But we got we to, gotta, you know, to have a serious conversation about Afghanistan, but then also beyond Afghanistan, because Afghanistan itself is a product of a series of encounters, let's say, but not necessarily clashes. Um, to be able to both understand Afghanistan using a more nuanced and a more sort of grounded language, but also the, the more the broader sort of meta discourses or debates around contexts like Afghanistan, uh, we, we, got, we have to be able to critique um, the, the visual politics that's involved uh, behind uh, those, those representations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, Salma is the, more of the expert on this stuff, but it's like how the body of the woman yeah. seems to be appropriated for very sort of nefarious, very pessimistic uh, political agendas. This involves both the West and the Taliban, right? So one, the Taliban is doing it for a sort of misplaced patriarchal sense of duty to protect our mothers and daughters. The Americans would do it for a similarly misplaced sense of liberation and emancipation of the oppressed Afghan women. Uh, and I think the problem is in between these two extremes, we forget to actually ask the Afghan women, how, how do you feel and appreciate the diversity, perhaps, yeah. that could exist there? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me, uh, for me, uh, regarding this, um, it doesn't matter to me exactly. Um, appearance uh, issue, one side. Why bearing is a question. Why bearing uh, they're exposing these pictures or visual um, um, like policies now? Um, what can they do for our future? Mm -hmm. they, they left us as um, in a very horrible way. You know, at the uh, 2001, they came and, and climbed as the woman or issue um, is, is uh, on the top of their agenda. But, but what happened today? You know, mm -hmm. I'm really worried about the woman. They are, again, they are getting erased very horribly, very toughly from the society. Their identities, their um, names, their, uh, like, um, their personalities getting erased. So um, these things, I guess, doesn't matter. Um, we are just looking what they do uh, after this with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, I you guys do a <laughs> Because it sounds like such a one-sided monologue, or not, I guess Salma's here, so it's not really a monologue. But what do you guys think? What do you guys make of all of, of all of this? Like, what about Australia's involvement in, in Afghanistan? Mm. Uh, do like just some impressions from you two? I want to hear. I want to hear it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's been a a tough conversation for Australia. I think particularly for soldiers that were there there's been some really mixed narratives about what they feel their purpose was now that you know the fall of Kabul happened so fast the fall of Afghanistan um heard some say that they you know feel as though there was education for women and a lot of what they did there and a bit of development and stuff and that was all great um and then I've heard the other side of what was it all for 
Um, you know, it it all fell so fast. From the outside as well, when you're looking at it on TV, it looks as though the Afghan army just collapsed and President Ghani fled and everything just happened so fast. And then you think, well, did we did we prop up the Afghan army and government while we were there? Did we, you know, what what actually happened? Because, you know, you hear President Biden say, oh, we, we helped them, they were ready for it, and then they just... It, they weren't. And so I think it's been quite a tough conversation because, you know, we've spent a lot of money there, we've spent a lot of time there and you look at it now and it, it's so tragic what's happening now and you just wonder how that all happened. So yeah. I don't know if you want to... And, and it's important, Naomi, I think to... I'm glad you point this out, to perhaps differentiate between uh, the uniform and what it stands for and those individuals, fellow human beings, our, our community members who actually don those uniforms, right? Um, and I think and for the Western world, this is perhaps um, as big a problem in the U.S. as anywhere. Um, but certainly in Australia, and we read about this and hear these horrible cases of, you know, mental health problems, PTSD, uh, depression, and even worse, you know, uh, suicides and, and so on and so forth. Um, it is so, I feel like it's important to look after our veterans and to not forget about them because as much as um, the Afghans were a victim of the war on terror and its prerogatives, the young men and women who find themselves in Afghanistan as one of many caterers of the war on terror, um, they, they were also victims of this sort of militarist or militant adventurism um, or decisions that were actually made in other centers of power, but Australia just tags along because of a particular history or perhaps um, the politics of the Anglo Anglosphere or an Anglospheric politics uh, or whatnot, you know. But in reality, if you ask me, Australia had no business being in Uruzgan, one of the you know one of the uh, heartlands of the Taliban insurgency, one of the you know, it's in the south, and also a very, a very um, intense battlefield for in a, in a protracted sense. Uh, but there we are; we found ourselves in there. So now we have to pick up pieces, both here and there, especially us as individuals. You know, I think, um, yeah, for me, most of the conversations that I've had have been, and the questions have been surrounding, like you know, what can we do to help from like an individual perspective? And, you know, there's been like templates going around where we can write to our local MP or, um, you know, ask to, to take in more refugees and from an actual practical, like individual, what can people in Australia, you know, do to help the people of, of Afghanistan at the moment? What would you recommend? I, look, I, I, I think it was said the other day as well. I perhaps didn't say it myself as much, so, but I... Um, try to highlight uh, what a co-panelist of ours said, which is don't assume a lot. Don't be in the typical white savior. Uh, it could come across as um, crass and perhaps um, too much. Uh, but what I would encourage uh, all your listeners to actually take a moment to talk someone, to talk to someone from the Afghan diaspora community. There's a, there a big community in, in Melbourne, as we all know, Dandenong and Sydney, you know, think Maryland's or, um, you know, 
we have very vibrant African community here there. Here in Brisbane, where I am, you know, sort of the areas around Woodbridge, Logan, usually you find them, they're vibrant mosques and communities and just people living, uh, living in our midst. Um, talk to them, ask them how they're doing, ask them what's happening in their own families. Um, a lot of the things uh, that has happened, and we don't need to get into that, but sort of the broader refugee politics in Australia has, uh, uh, you know, very, unfortunately, um, very violent consequences for the people who go through that system. Uh, and, and then I, I imagine that, you know, we're already talking about the numbers now, but there would be more Afghans coming in. Um, and just looking at them, not always as people without a voice, but rather people who are agentic, who can explain their situation. Maybe that explanation might not sit well with our sort of assumed knowledges or knowledge perspectives, but, but try to honor that perspective, that experience by listening, by, by asking questions mm -hmm. rather than always dispensing of answers mm -hmm. and solutions. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's so like interesting because we asked that same question last week and it was the exact same response, you know, just ask and listen. Yeah, listen to yeah. listen to all sides, listen to everyone. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you guys staying for so long. We have one final question, um, which both of you can probably answer. And um, we just want to know what you see as the future of Afghanistan. Do you see any light at the moment? What do you feel is coming for your country? Um, well, I wish if I could... Um tell something exactly i i am um, i'm not exactly in that position to tell uh, that's the taliban the universal um society global society who's uh, telling us what what uh, will they do for afghanistan and for their people i wish i i just can say that um they could leave us a bit more responsibly um mm -hmm. you know they they um i mean all the foreign forces um they they made us uh, they made afghans paid for something that we have never uh did you mm -hmm. know i mean the 9 11 events they they made us uh paid for that mm -hmm. you know and uh now i i hope that the world do not leave us again uh, leave us um alone again um so i'm i'm looking for their um uh, for their attention toward Afghans, especially Afghan women, uh, they are really worried about their uh, future. They have um, they have been using from very uh, small chances to 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 make some lights for their future. Mm. I can say from uh, my side, I I, I was sure that um, the changes I wanted to see will never come in my generation in my time. But I was working for for our next generations, for other girls uh, who are coming after us, but everything um, just destroyed. Yeah. So so I'm just, um, hopefully, hopefully, I, I, I just um, wish that um, they, they do not leave us um, more than this and in, in, in dangerous and in, in, um, aloneness. So yeah. let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's, that's uh, I guess that's nicely put. I would say though, like, look, in in terms of like, whether they, they you know, whether they leave us alone, that is, um, 
the, the problem is that calling for attention, that attention is not as much as it's framed and altruistic or human, like uh, a certain European humanism defines uh, Western altruism. Um, that humanism is violent, at least to me, in and of itself. It's not always what it portrays itself as. Developmentalism, in many ways, is an extension of colonialism because you couldn't quite colonize another society. There are, for example, these um, very unique examples of how African white colonists would return back to the mother country, to the metropole, and then once the UN was back in full swing and developmentalism became a genuine agenda, they would be deployed back to their former, uh, you know, the colonies where they, what, which, which they called home, perhaps, in the African continent. But this time around, they would come back as UN expats and development workers. And in many ways, unfortunately, that, that, that uh, violent sort of trajectory continues to define uh, humanitarianism and developmentalism. Um, in Afghanistan, of course, the way that security agenda superseded all else, including the UN programs, um, which is like something that you can't deny. Mm -hmm. UNAMA or the UN mission for Afghanistan had its own political wing and its political wing was basically more or less that everything that the NATO headquarters uh, or for that matter, Pentagon or the State Department, uh, USAID and US Embassy decided mm -hmm. as policy positions. Uh, UNDP, for example, paid for the Afghan police who did then you know, as, as, as part of its daily activities, fought in the war on terror in support of the American security agenda, right? And those are just some examples, but unfortunately this extends and it's that contaminating factor of the war on terror and how it took over um, different facets of uh, developmentalism or the developmentalist agenda in Afghanistan. So I, I hesitate to call for more engagement or an openness as long as the our as long as sort of the wartime rhetoric or remain unanswered, but of course the 35, 37 million Afghans cannot wait for that, right? It's easier for someone outside saying that uh, when uh, you know the 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 looming humanitarian crisis, uh, if we are not already there, or the fact that there are some very bleak reports that speak mm -hmm. of as many or as much as 98% suffering from hunger real soon in Afghanistan, um, none of that will wait for this politics. So uh, it, it is a tough one, but I still hope that there is enough room for negotiation and perhaps for that matter for dissent in the Western world to compel us to reassess some of our principled positions when it comes to intervention or when it comes to responsibility to protect or when it comes to developmentalism so that we can give out aid without expecting that access to food or access to clean water or access to electricity will is only valid uh, if it actually wins us hearts and minds that's a nonsensical mm -hmm. that's a very you know violent approach to uh, aid and development unfortunately for decades now, Afghanistan has only accessed aid and development uh, resources through uh, such a rhetoric, um, and we need to stop that. And it won't go anywhere um, with, with sort of that continuation or reproduction of that wartime discourse.
Um, we also wanted to say if people want to hear more from Selma, you have a website. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm running a website since 2019 that uh, where I, I publish um, stories of women uh, from Afghanistan. And they're um, stories from um, like uh, that was um, supposed as uh, I would publish their stories from daily their daily life um, under a war country there is war but uh, now everything is changed and uh, I'm, I'm planning to to publish their stories from life under the um, Taliban because yeah. uh, this is the starting of history you know yeah. Absolutely. And, well thank but you hey, I want to thank both of you for uh, putting some uh, light on the Afghan uh, the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan um i i think i think you guys are awesome for doing what you're doing and i hope that mm-hmm. uh those who are listening to this uh i don't i don't want them to walk away with too many answers as much as as human beings we're compelled to give away answers mm-hmm. i suppose uh, or we find it difficult to not do that but let's go away i hope with more questions and just complicate Absolutely. these these assumptions that we have about peoples that we hardly ever come across in a sustained way anyway um, but just the two of you, you guys are awesome. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so thank much. You. You guys and awesome. right back at you. Thank yeah. you so much for the time, your expertise, your personal experience. It's been really awesome. In the spirit of reconciliation, being there, seeing that, acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. We will be having a new guest on every episode with a new topic to learn about. We have an Instagram and you can follow us at Been There, Seen That Podcast. We also have Twitter and our handle is Been Seen Podcast. We hope you guys enjoyed today's episode and learned a lot about what's happening in Afghanistan. Next week, our episode will be on Somalia. So if you know a little bit or a lot or not much at all about what's happening there we'll hopefully cover everything so stay tuned and see you next week